think that was good. Awesome. So, welcome to another episode of PH Divas. I'm Zain Yao. And this is Liz Wayne. And we're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. That's we're... right. We're both fans of red lipstick and... We're also PhDs. What she said. Today, we have a very special topic for you guys. It's been a while since Zain and I have just kind of kicked it and just talked, you know, woman to woman, PhD to PhD. We've, we've had a lot of great these... guests, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, doing great things, but we've been all over the world, maybe? The yeah. country. The North American continent. <laughs> but not Mexico. <laughs> anyway, but let's keep going. The North North. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we would talk to you guys about our postdocs. You know, fill you in on what life has been like in the last year or year and a half resigned since we have gotten our PhDs. Yeah, and I think this would be useful, especially for people who are earlier on, because um, both within academia, as gra- early stage graduate students and outside, a lot of people are confused about what do postdocs do, and even the versus STEM versus humanities, I have a lot of questions from my STEM friends, like, what does a humanities postdoc do? And they're both very different things. So we'll talk a little bit about like how different postdocs are different structurally on a disciplinary level, and then we'll get into some of the fun stuff that Liz and I have been doing since we both <laughs> left Cornell. <laughs> the postdoc is definitely interesting. And I definitely get a lot of questions from particularly students when they say, or they, they really want to know what's different between the grad school experience and the postdoc experience. Um, so hopefully we can also talk about that and, and see how it's different from the STEM and humanities divide. So I'll be honest, Zion, I have no idea what a postdoc in English does. Do you want to start? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's a little bit more obvious in the STEM field what postdocs are because if you've ever been in a lab, like you just know the postdoc is like the the older person that helps them manage things. <laughs> that's that's the perception I have. Whereas I don't think that like undergrads really communicate or get to interact very much with humanities postdoc postdocs unless they're teaching a class. And in graduate students, like sometimes you might, you have very few humanities postdocs. So sometimes you may have them in your department or not. So this also mm. comes to um, a pretty large difference structurally between the way that STEM postdocs work and the way humanities postdocs work. The way that I understand STEM postdocs work is that um, after your PhD, you apply to different labs for postdocs. And it seems like every lab at least has, has one postdoc position available, if not more. Is that correct, Rose? Um, yeah. It yeah. can be. So some, I mean, you don't have to have a postdoc. Mm-hmm. So there are some labs that don't have postdocs and there are some labs that may only have postdocs. It's up oh, to okay. how the, um, the professor wants to run their lab. Oh, okay. And so in the meantime, of course, we don't have lab, labs in the humanities. And so what happens for us is, whereas like Liz and biomedical engineering will probably like apply to, apply to a bunch of different biomedical labs at different universities, for humanities, entire school, like one school like Cornell or Brown or something like that, will maybe usually have two to three postdocs for all fields in the humanities. Wow. Yeah, so everyone is applying. But not, mm. only, the, not only that, but what's also a little bit odd, despite being called a postdoc, which you assume is like always the next step after a PhD, mm-hmm. it's much rarer in the humanities um, to have a postdoc. First of course, as you can you clearly see, like there's fewer of them. Um, it's more competitive. It's not seen as necessary. 
But there's also this pressure now that it's not just people who are about to finish their PhDs or just have their PhDs. For humanities postdocs in the U.S., you're also competing against assistant professors. Wow. I know, which might sound really weird, but um, it's also because assistant professors are being so squeezed in terms of time for research before tenure that the only time the way they can get time off from teaching is to apply for a postdoc um, as a sort of grant that will allow them to give them time away from their institution to do their research so they can get tenure. So you have this sort of weird thing that, again, postdocs not being that common in the humanities. Second, there's a lot fewer of them. Third, like um, you're also up against tenure track faculty for them. Does so that... they're very difficult positions to get. And I'm guessing this means they're also funded by the university? Um, so it really varies. Um, there are a lot of institutions do have postdoc programs that are internal to university. But, uh, for example, in the U.S., of course, Mellon, the Mellon Institution mm -hmm. has uh, will give grants to different institutions for uh, for postdocs. I have a friend who's at Johns Hopkins who is on a Mellon postdoc. And, for example, here's another sort of um, complica uh, complication. Often, like, when there's an external body or, like, say, like, Humanities Center who's running the postdocs, Every year they choose a theme for what they want the postdocs to be. And you don't know if you're mm. going to actually fit that theme. So yes, Penn may have postdocs available, but you may not have any work on the theme of apocalypse, for example. Mm. Um, so my friends at Hopkins, who's a wonderful, brilliant person, I hope to bring her to the podcast. Uh, she, for Mellon, I think her year, I think it was specifically about religion, I think maybe Islam and the city. And she so happens to work on Muslim American literature. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, another complication. Like, does your, not only are there so few of them, will your work actually fit a particular theme? Or I know that for the University of Toronto coming up this year, I just saw the call go out and they, I think they have two to three postdocs for all the humanities and the theme is apology. Apology? Yeah. I just pictured Justin Bieber applying for this. Oh, okay. So, so for me, I, I was thinking about... I was thinking I'm of, sorry. Or I was thinking mm -hmm. Beyonce sorry. Like, I'm not sorry. Oh, that, that's actually sorry. way better. Wow. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, to get a little you bit... You know what? So I'm not going to edit it out. It's staying. Because <laughs> I need mm -mm -mm. Sorry. I w anyway, I know that's terribly catchy. But so that's gets a little <laughs> bit about like how postdocs are structured, but it doesn't actually get into what they do. Mm -hmm. So typically a postdoc in humanities is anywhere from one to four years. And they could be research postdocs or teaching postdocs. Uh, there's a lot more teaching postdocs because... Part of that is that you teach like a 2-2 or 3-3 course load. Um, and so it gives you an opportunity to go to another institution, get to know the faculty, build up your teaching experience, and hopefully still have time to do research. Uh, a research postdoc might just only have like one, like zero one teaching load. Uh, I know this is in some cases, or even no teaching. And you do just you have get to the teach time for your structure. fellowship that you're currently in? No. So I'm fortunate that I have a postdoc through SHRC, which is the Canadian federal institution called Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Canada. It's kind of like if humanities <clears throat> and social sciences in the U.S., the way that you guys have, I think, NSERC? Is it N... For the STEM fields? Yeah. 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 It's like basically we have in Canada both the STEM version and this humanities social science mm -hmm. version. And so I've previously gotten grants for them from my, for my master's and PhD work, and now I have a postdoc through them that I'm holding at the University of British Columbia. And I don't teach. I could apply to teach if I wanted to, but I'm focusing on my research. Does that help? Yeah. And so what what um, kind of research are you doing? So I, I know when I talked to you before, you're 
trying to write some papers and you're trying yes. to turn your dissertation into a book. Yeah. So, um, so my plan right now is that this semester I'm working on a number of articles, uh, either related or not related to my dissertation. So I can have enough time away that when I come back to my dissertation in the spring, I'm ready to like put on a, you know, a new pair of lenses to be able to see how I can transform the dissertation into a book project. And of course, it's not like I'm not thinking about it during the semester, but I'm like trying to start thinking like, how would the title be different? How might I structure chapters differently? And then in the spring, I'll really get to that work. Uh, perhaps a little what's useful also for my STEM listeners, like it's a little bit confusing, I think, when you hear that we're working on books, because of course, like books aren't as in, don't have, have the same weight in other fields. In the humanities, there's really this fixation on the book or the scholarly monograph through university press as the marker of knowledge from a scholar. There's a lot of problems mm -hmm. with that model, and it's like getting it becoming a more and more outdated model because, of course, articles are faster, they're more current. But still, that is considered what you need to have for tenure. It's pretty much universal. I think even at like smaller colleges, like small liberal arts institutions, um, you got to have your book in hand when you go out for contract, uh, go out for tenure. And so trying to get trying to get that under the way and also like get some publications out so I can be a competitive candidate on the job market. How long do you think you'll be in your postdoc? Uh, so my postdoc is for two years. Uh, for the short postdoc, you could apply for a one or two year postdoc. Mm. And then you'll get on the job market again or go yeah. for another postdoc maybe? I guess we'll see. So I guess the, the other part of it is that I think that I'll have to, like even this year, I'm going to be applying a little bit because the academic job market, of course, is so notoriously difficult. Like I need to make sure that I'm sharp. I make sure, need to make sure that my, my materials are updated. There's definitely op opportunities this year that I'm really excited about. So I'm, I want to go for them and my committee and my, all my mentors are really um, supportive of that. But also it's becoming increasingly common in the humanities that sometimes people go through multiple postdocs, which I hear is also a norm in STEM. Mm -hmm. So for example, like, especially for the prestigious ones, there's this humanities postdoc at Princeton that you're only allowed to apply to once in your life. <laughs> in your life. They make that yeah, clear. Yeah. They actually like, so you got to make that shot count, you know? Um, and they only have two positions. And my understanding was last year it went to one, one of the positions went to someone who already had a postdoc and the second one went to assistant professor. So it obviously doesn't make sense to apply to that Princeton one when you're just graduating with your PhD because you can be an excellent student, but you're also up against people that, you know, whose CVs have like five years on you at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that this very interesting landscape um, in STEM, there are a lot more postdocs and most frequently, the postdocs are funded through grants that the um, principal investigator or the, the professor has already gotten. And that's probably why there are more or why they're more or less. So depending on what the professor's vision is, if they want a lab that's dominated by postdocs, they may just hire only postdocs or um, have like one or two that serve as leads in their team. Um, the difference between the postdoc and let's say graduate school is in graduate school the project is largely already funded the design is already kind of made and you are sort of carving out that project and kind of making it happen whereas when you're a postdoc you are expected to do more of the grant writing 
You're yeah. expected to, and, and also this will probably depend on what you want to do afterwards. So if you want to go into acad to industry or science policy or some other alt act job, this may not be so, um, so much required, but ideally you would be trying to establish research independence from your, your PI by submitting research proposals, getting your own funding, developing your own projects and carrying those out. Um, if you were, and again, if you're not going into academia, the grant writing may not be as important, but you're still expected to start and finish another project. And you're also expected to do that faster. So when the expectation, so that, so what I just described, I guess, are the difference in roles, the differences mm -hmm. of expectation would probably be that professors expect you to work faster. Mm. So they expect you to have learned how to do research well. And now that you're a postdoc, they expect you to be more, more, a more mature academic and um, you should be able to learn a task, pick it up and translate that to an experiment. They may expect you to be a leader in lab more so. so other grad students may come and ask you for help because now you have expertise in the field. And it's often very funny to think about these things because sometimes the, dif the, the difference is a day. So I don't know, getting my PhD felt very anticlimactic because you, you work so hard and you, you give the presentation, you do the defense part, and then they say, congratulations, Dr. Wayne, you, you're a PhD. And now everywhere I go, they're like, oh, you're an expert in this. You can tell me about this, right? And I'm going... Yeah, but I was an expert last week too. <laughs> you know that that change <laughs> happens so quickly. Yeah. And then that change between oh, I'm not a postdoc and now I'm a postdoc and now like it's a come almost instantaneous switch. It's very interesting. Yeah, and maybe another thing just to add is like my understanding is that for both of our postdocs there's no coursework typically for postdocs. No, there's no coursework. Oh, really? You there I'm in that sorry. I'm not making sense right now. Okay. I'm in a training program. It's the Carolina oh, okay. Center for Nanotechnology Training Program. And through that, I actually can take classes if I want to. They'll oh, be paid okay. for. Or you can audit them. And that's kind of what I'm doing. I decided to audit rather than taking the formal class because, you know, mm -hmm. undergrads, <laughs> grad students <laughs> care about grades, and I'm not about that life. Yeah. And obviously, as you said, you're already under pressure that you're supposed to be this mature researcher that's supposed to get more things done. So... Yeah, kind of juggling. <clears throat> but as a postdoc, we're not we're not students anymore, and so you know that whole paying for tuition and trying to actually formally take the classes is so it's not as different. I think this also comes to another um, what you're saying early comes to another interesting point is again I think it's also a big STEM humanities difference is like STEM is so much more social like you're still working in lab you're working with people. You have a PI, even though like you're now like also like a manager in a more official role. I coming into my postdoc, I do have an advisor, Mary Chapman, and she's great. But I'm not working on her project. I'm just on my own. Mm -hmm. I could just stay in my apartment and just do my work alone the whole time. Like some postdocs, like of course you can go out of your way to make writing groups. Um, I'm going to be presenting my my work at UBC in a different couple different venues, but it's the work is far more solitary. Yeah, I've, I've heard you say that and I'm trying to picture what that's like. Um, and while um, I don't think people work alone, 
in that way. Maybe computer or data inform informatics people can work on the, in their computer and therefore they don't have to be attached to a location. I would also add that in the STEM fields, it's also dependent on where you work and who you work with. Mm. So even though people are you can be surrounded by people when you're working, you can also still feel very alone. There can be language barriers. Um, there could be a culture of not collaborating with each other. So I think you, I don't know, you might be a little skewed by research if you used to see me in my lab because oh, okay. I'm very talkative. And um, You're special and one of a kind, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> but some labs don't talk and they oh, don't okay. collaborate with each other and so oh. you can be in the same office with people and not know anything about them or like um or be feel like you can actually talk to people or you could be the only english speaker or you could be the only non-english speaker actually like hmm. english yeah. speaker yeah you could you could be isolated you could be like maybe the only woman in your lab um or the only man and that can cause some 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 friction and these are all examples that i've seen or you could actually so my lab my phd lab was very large but there are some labs that are very small so they may have the pi and one student or they may have the pi and the like a research tech that's been there for a very long time or two students and that can actually be very frustrating because if there are two students and you guys don't get along mm -hmm. um that that obviously doesn't work out very well or if you are a student and you have um i don't know you're working with a research tech but the research tech is like 30 years different than you that, that can also be challenging particularly i think for younger students who are just transitioning from undergrad to grad school that can be hard so, yeah, so by no means is it, is it the same as working in um, in the humanities PhD where there is no, at least no setting. There are also ways in the STEM field where people can be very isolated and feel very alone. Mm -hmm. I think this also gets to this broader point that applies probably to all forms of postdocs. What's it's that? weird being a postdoc. You're not a student <laughs> and you're not quite faculty. Like, you're just sort of suspended in this strange liminal space and like I'm still wrapping my head around it um because mm. I'm so like being a graduate student has been such a huge part of my life obviously in graduate student advocacy and that's still stuff, stuff that I'm working on but like now like obviously I'm supposed to be transitioning into something as faculty but I'm not at the same time mm. um and so yeah. I find that very strange like there's not a set social scene typically for no social when you come scene. in yeah, like uh, that's some, no seems to be something I've talked class, to a lot. No orientation, no way to. You don't make have a friends. cohort the same way. Mm -hmm. Like I know that there's two other postdocs in English at UBC. Um, I haven't met them. I think they're both men who are much older than me. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that. Like um, so, a little bit of background. I'm now in Vancouver. This is the first time I ever lived on the West Coast. I'd never even been to Vancouver before. I decided to move here. I moved here because I know it's gorgeous. I wanted to work with Mary Chapman. There's great resources, but. I knew that uh, I was going to a place where I pretty much had no friends. Like I knew like two people, one of them was my advisor. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, if I just end up being a postdoc post in humanities alone by myself, if I don't go out of my way to find community, it'd be a very lonely two years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's very different. I was so stressed out from my PhD that having no one to talk to was actually a relief. <laughs> but after that, we're off. <laughs> you know, I'm looking around like I need 
I need human interaction. I need this thing. And yeah, it is very challenging. I actually, I feel like I felt it more poignantly than some of my cohort, so to speak, because mm. I was single. And so, oh, uh, you yes, know, yeah, that's another big I, I came alone. And um, I also kind of realized that a lot of the postdocs that I did meet did not or were not alone. So, yeah, so there's like this subtle difference. But that said, I, I think it took a long time. But I did find friends, and so I'm ho- I'm hoping that for people who are listening or going about their postdoc or even just moving into a new space, just please don't give up hope. Know that it, it does take some time to find those friends and those people who are like you or may have interests that you have, but they are out there. And actually, and was, last week, yeah. I was at this um, luncheon, and um, I ran into two awesome women of color who were doing STEM, and um, and we exchanged numbers and emails, and we're going to hang out, and we're also going to help each Yay. other write grants. So super awesome. But I didn't find that I didn't find those people until like ten months in, and so it's mm. it's challenging. I very challenging. I would say that I feel really lucky in that respect. So I have to talk about where I am specifically now. I'm a resident of Green College, UBC, which is one of the two only graduate colleges in Canada. That's And so the idea of, yeah, like, I guess this is for Liz, but also maybe for some of our listeners who remember, like, Raven, but Hans Beta House. Okay, there's also this new, it's not a nudist colony. I saw you trying to go over that detail. I know. Okay, I live in this beautiful, gorgeous place. That I where I could see mountains and we're five minutes from the beach and the beach is a nudist beach. Let's yep. get that out of the way. That only I've, men I've participate in. Pe- yeah, I've seen one naked woman. She tried to sell shrooms, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I was really lucky to um, apply to a place like Green College because it's like our beloved Hans Beta House, except like a community of like about a hundred graduates and postdocs and some visiting visiting faculty, and it's basically it's interdisciplinary uh, community where people want to do things together which I feel is, you know, it's, it's really awesome. Like we've gone to see like a play, uh, Shakespeare play. We're organizing to go to the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. I get to have all these meals with awesome people from all different disciplines. So it's like beta, but like smaller. And I think like everyone wants to participate because you have to apply to get in. So I feel very lucky that I was able to come in and have friends. But then here's what's the weirdness. Like there are very few postdocs. I think I might be the only woman postdoc. And so people are always like so surprised, like, oh, are you a master's student or a PhD? I'm like, I'm a postdoc. And they're like, oh, you don't look that old. I'm like, oh, oh well, thank you. I care about my skincare. But <laughs> but there's also this interesting thing that, again, because I'm around so many graduate students at like, different stages, like some of them are even just like 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel that divide is as much as it also seems like I haven't gotten away from it. And Obviously, I feel responsibility perhaps to be a mentor in some ways, but also it's just funny that like I'll be walking along with my friends um, and we'll like try to be applying to things around UBC. And it's like, oh, actually, I can't do this because I don't qualify anymore because I'm not a student. Yeah. You know, for, for simple things like bus passes, for mm-hmm. simple things like gym passes, like all these like little things. I'm so used and like I'm in a position of relative privilege. I get to have a much nicer room because I'm a postdoc. So it's like, wow, I'm so used to thinking myself as being this embattled graduate student, but wow. As a postdoc, yes, I have all these responsibilities, but things are nicer, I have to admit, in some ways. Um, So my uh, status at the university is a temporary employee. 
And so it's this weird language, which essentially means I don't get any of the benefits of faculty, mm. but they're not going to call me a student because then I get some advantages. Like in this weird, weird space that always lets me know that I can be let go at any point in time and no one's going to care. Wow, that's brutal. Um, I mean, that's the postdoc. That's... um. Yeah. That's, I think, pretty standard language for postdocs. We'll stem postdocs across the field. Um, uh-huh. Being the non the non employee, it's like it's a special position. So I did feel that whole thing, especially because now I'm at UNC. So obviously, if I can get tickets to a basketball game, that'd be kind of nice, you know? Yeah. But no, we don't, I'm not a faculty and I'm not a student, so I don't qualify for any ticket discounts or anything. Ouch. Yeah. How much do those go for? Yeah. But, well, there's no but. That's just it. Just a lot. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure how I, maybe I've been more ambivalent. I don't mind not being a student anymore. Yeah, I guess I, I don't mind it either, but I also, I feel... I guess I've always felt like we're we're both addicted to responsibility, to, let's be <laughs> honest. And so like now I'm trying to um, organize a reading group for Americanists that include not just people from English, but there's a, the Institute for uh, the Study of Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Social Justice. I have some friends in that, uh, South Asian Studies, Interpersonal Studies. So there are things, but... Yeah, so that's not what I'm doing. Um, yeah. My goal for my postdoc has really always been to be selfish with my time uh-huh. because this is the time that I have to develop my career. This is also my detoxing time from from Ithaca, New York. And mm-hmm. so even when I want to do things, I like refrain from like stepping in and doing them or trying to be really careful about what I do do so that yeah. they making sure they have some sort of value for me. But um I'm not as involved in things like university wise. I think it, by the time I ended Cornell, I was in a lot of things and now I'm not. And yeah, and a lot of that's intentional because the other thing that I know is if I'm successful in getting a tenure track position, I've heard countless faculty members like just sound so happy about their, the days they had as a postdoc and how it was easier to be a postdoc than to be a faculty member and how the, like, the postdoc was a really special time. And that makes a lot of sense to me because, because now I actually do just get to do research, whereas when I become a faculty member, I will be on a million committees, and mm-hmm. I will have the responsibility of keeping a lab afloat. And there are a lot of things that faculty do that we don't see. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm trying to have as much fun as I can in this moment, and a part of that means letting myself just do the work and then sleep. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I think that also what we're getting to is the art of saying no, which they say that you have to cultivate in academia. Like, yes, it's important to like develop your CV, take these opportunities, but it, when you give, they'll keep taking and taking. Postdoc I, life. Yeah. The postdoc life is interesting. Single ladies I have to admit, <laughs> I have to admit that, um, I had this, I was talking with some friends at Chapel Hill and, you know, the question always comes up, like, how long are you going to be there? And I always say like, oh, two to three years and I'm done. And then this one person said, you know, it's going to be like four. And I looked at her like, no, how dare you? 
How dare you say the word four? No, I can't be here for four years. And then I thought about it. Is there funding it. for a fourth year? And I thought about, sorry? Is there funding for a fourth year if you wanted to take it? or? Um. So that question is weird. Only because um, most of your P, most most postdocs are funded by their PI's grants. Uh-huh. So yes, there is funding. The real question is, do your uh, does your PI want to fund you, and do you need to still do you still want to be there? Mm, okay. So. So it's also field specific. So some some postdocs will be in there for seven years. Wow. Some people do two postdocs. So the first one could be two years. Next one could be four years. And so I'm hoping to get it done in two or three. And yeah, I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna get it done in two or three. But it can also last a lot longer. And in some fields, like I've seen some hiring committees only want people who have done four more, four years or more of a postdoc. Wow, that's really interesting as a requirement. Well, not, and you know what I mean by requirement. Like the person who is on the committee is not a written rule, okay, but yeah, their yeah. standard for um, mm-hmm. what is successful. And if you just look around and look at the people who are hired and then look at their track records, you'll see a lot of them did really long postdocs. And so that's sometimes that's disheartening. <laughs> it is because I feel like um, definitely. So a friend of mine who's a molecular geneticist, another one who's an astrophysicist, were saying like now it's not just being typical. They need two postdocs. Sometimes it's even three before you get a tenure track position. And of course, what we're talking about here is like yeah, postdocs can be pretty sweet, but like it's still temporary. And when does your life begin? Like when? Like obviously, like we're still living during this t- same thing, but like considerations of like having partners or children become even more complicated um, when you know that you don't know where you're going to be in a couple years, right? You don't know when you're going to settle down. Yeah. The postdoc, it, it can, it definitely is this waiting period. I still don't know where I'm going to end up. I think I'll go wherever the job goes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have some choices, the cities I like to live in, but, but you know, where within those jobs fall will be really good but I'm preparing myself for this long haul but more importantly I'm trying to be smart about my time and trying Mm -hmm. to think about what I need to do to maximize the time and to do what I what what will help me look good in my application and not just doing Mm -hmm. a bunch of things in the hopes that it will make me look good in my application yeah that's my hope as well (laughs) like I feel very grateful to have the postdoc since um, again, I have, since I don't have any teaching, that means more time that I can allot towards my research. Um, I have friends who were fortunate enough to get straight into tenure track jobs. And I know how incredibly busy they are. Like people say that you can't get any of your own work done in the first year that you're on the tenure track, at least in the humanities, because there's so much new teaching to do and everything like that. Mm-hmm. You could perpetually exhausted. And so there's this odd trade-off that on the one hand, I have the time that they don't have, but they have the, like the temporary security that I don't have. And so I do hope that the postdoc will make me more competitive for tenure track positions. And then who knows what happens. Vancouver is pretty sweet though. Not just because of the new to speech. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely interesting. You go down to the beach, you see a lot of things, mountains, also naked people. <laughs> it's really beautiful here. Also what's really confusing. I didn't know that there's palm trees in Canada. Oh, 
Oh, are they implanted there or natural? I think they're natural. Huh. I'm not entirely sure. Like, they're just, like, around because, like, this is the warmest city in Canada. But still, like, it confuses <laughs> me because I don't think of our country as a place that has palm trees. Uh, That's weird. And there's, like, yeah, the gorgeous mountains. Learn something new every day. Yeah. That's my my weird Vancouver factoid. <laughs> well, North Carolina is incredibly hot, but I already knew that. And I'm so happy it's calming down. I am mm-hmm. two and a half hours away from the beach and three hours away from the mountains. That makes me happy. And for the first time in my academic career, I'm really close to um, family. Yay. So that's been interesting. Yeah, this is the farthest I've been from my family. <laughs> One thing my grandmother kept saying is like, oh, you're going to be in the same country, but you're going to be so much farther away since home is Toronto for me. Mm-hmm. So it's just so funny. Like now I'm on the other side of the country versus like being in the U.S. Whereas like, you know, a five, five hour ride. Yeah. Like car ride away. Yeah. <sighs> the time zone difference. Definitely that makes things sort of like difficult in terms of like, Figuring out when I'm going to Skype with my family, when I'm going to talk to Liz, things like that. Yeah, if only I'd been switched, you know, because I'm the morning person. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But see, now when, when I wake up, rather than sleeping in, when I wake up my usual time, I seem almost like a normal person. Do you say so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have such different schedules. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, there are some days I'm like, I'm not by my computer at all. Although I've been grant writing recently, so I think I've been more responsive than usual. But that's about to stop as I try to juggle grant writing and research at the same time. And taking meetings with people to discuss Mm -hmm. like new research plans, new collaborations. Yeah. It's exciting, but scary. And... um, Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just had this flash moment because eventually, right now, I've won every grant that I've ever applied for. But ultimately, I'm going to get decisions back and Mm -hmm. I'm going to be rejected. Uh, I'm not not saying that to like, you know, I'm not trying to get false support support from people. It's just a fact of the process that I won't Mm -hmm. get everything and trying to have a healthy mentality about that. Yeah, and I think with thanks so much for bringing it up, Liz. Like, I feel like I've heard from so many people that one of our previous episodes about rejection was really helpful, and I think that's something that needs to be said for me. I have to be honest about like I applied to a lot of things. I got really lucky that I got this, and obviously I worked really hard. But like, I'm also feel lucky at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a lot. You have to go through a lot of rejection to get here, and. To bring this back to like the problem with issue of the academic job market, I know a lot of people who have continued to struggle year after year who are really great, hardworking, smart people. Yeah. And things just for whatever reason don't line up for them. And it just there's a certain point where it's really not about merit. It's and it's so it can be so draining and punishing. Mm-hmm. And on that note <laughs> <laughs> on that very draining and punishing and happy note, um, we want to thank you guys for listening to our podcast. This is 
just the beginning of our postdoc experiences. If you would like to share a story about your postdoc experience, feel free to email us at Liz and Zine, both of our names, at gmail.com. You can also save us a message on Twitter or Facebook under the PhD Liz podcast hashtag. Where's the at sign? Um, listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. And for more stories of the single lady postdocs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Slides are the holding that in, guys. She's the one to I know, I just am really excited. It's like this is a much more like racially diverse and academically focused sex in the city. <laughs> oh actually there's like there's no uh, actually no correlation whatsoever if you think about it. Sex in the city. Except for yeah. No anyway. Sex or no city. Mm, maybe we'll get this in another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> But stay tuned, because you want to find out, don't you? <laughs> I'm not going to finish that. I'm, I'm going to let you do the sultry, and you're gonna, we're going to go out. <laughs> okay. Play us out. Yes. Put the track over this. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>